Wow, it's been good already to be the get together this morning, uh, celebrating Dave and uh, and then singing songs to God, uh, laughing together, uh, singing together, praying together. This is it's good. We have been uh, this last last week and this week we're parking ourselves in the parable of the prodigal son as a way to sort of hear again God's amazing grace. And I made the case last week that the parable of the prodigal son is perhaps misnamed. It's really the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, because today we're going to bring into focus the elder brother in the story. It sometimes gets overlooked, but it's an important part of the story in Jesus' telling. Now, it can be quite helpful, I think. Here's a little Bible reading tip for you. It can be very helpful from time to time as you're reading Scripture to ask the question, where am I in this story? So, uh, for sure, in terms of the parable proper, you can ask, you know, do I relate more to the younger brother, the younger son, or the elder son, or perhaps you respond a little bit like the father and just sort of identify with the characters, that can be helpful. Here, what I'm actually asking is, where in the context of this story do you find yourself? So, if you remember what prompted the story in the first place, there was a bunch of religious people, Pharisees they're called, who are complaining and muttering to Jesus that he's eating with all the wrong kinds of people. Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And I find myself, this week I've wondered, where would I be in that story? Would I be sitting at the table with Jesus? Am I one of those people? Or uh, perhaps in my, you know, my most, um, I don't know, whatever moment, am I Jesus in that story? Am I welcoming those folks? But if I'm really honest, I think I know exactly where I'd be in the story. I'd be standing with the guys muttering on the sidelines that Jesus is eating with the wrong kind of people. That's exactly where I'd be standing. Um, If there was such a thing as Pharisees Anonymous, I would be a part. I would say, hello, my name is Renus. I'm a recovering Pharisee. And I say that, uh, and it would be true, because I just did a little inventory of my life. It's a little depressing. Uh, on where I've come from, and I could tell you all kinds of stories that would, uh, that would make this clear to you. I'll just tell you one, uh, to my shame and horror. Um, I was, I worked for a year in a program one time, and I was, uh, in a church in South Dakota, uh, in the U.S., and I was there for a year, and pulled, so I was doing some youth work, among other things, in this church, and we pulled the senior high youth group together, uh, I think this was our first meeting. And I didn't know these guys. I, in my mind's eye, they're guys. There were probably girls in the room too, but I don't quite remember. Um, but this group, there was probably a dozen people in the room, and we were going to talk about sex because I figured that would get the kids out and we'll talk about sex, right? So I'm a bit naive. I'm 20. Um <laughs> And these words come out, like I kind of, I asked, you know, like not thinking through anything very well. I said, what do you guys think about sex? And there's silence in the room, awkward silence, right? Nobody's saying anything. So then these words come out of my mouth to my regret. I said, I said, well, let's start here. I said, premarital sex is for wimps and losers, is what I said. 
And then there wasn't just awkward silence, there was like deathly silence. And I, clearly nobody in the room is with me here. What I wish I would have said, I've gone back to that moment a few times in my mind, what I wish I would have said to those kids, I wish I would have maybe given them a vision for how God has created sexuality in a beautiful way and how somehow our maleness and femaleness sort of mirror and, and somehow it's a, that's how we image God, this triune God of love. I wish I could have introduced them to John Paul II's theology of the body, which is just absolutely, it'll bring you to tears, it's so good, about talking to, about sexuality, but I didn't say that. And really the scorn you hear, I wish it was accidental, but it wasn't. I said it's for wimps and losers, and I meant those words. And I was judgmental. And I meant it. Because I looked down on people that didn't share my moral code. I looked down on people who didn't think how I thought or believed how I believed. I would be just I am those Pharisees, muttering on the side that Jesus is eating with wimps and losers. And so my name is Renus, and I am a recovering Pharisee, and I identify with the elder brother in this story. And it's been a bit difficult to read this text this week and prepare, because this is my story, and I invite you to hear it. You might find yourself in it as well. Just hear God's word. I'm just going to pick up the second half of the parable. So it's Luke 15. And I'm going to pick up on verse at verse 25. So we've already had the first part where the younger son, it's his journey where he squanders his father's wealth, his father's life really, and, and returns. And we've talked about how that is just a beautiful picture of God's grace, uh, even in the returning, as well as the welcome. And now this starting in at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked him and said, well, what's going on? Well, your brother's come home, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. This is the word of the Lord. So just kind of walk your way through this story. It's now kind of told largely through the elder son perspective. And he finds out what's going on and he refuses to join the celebration, right? And remember what prompted the story in the first place. These Pharisees who are standing on the sidelines refusing to join the celebration. 
right? So this is, this is very much who Jesus is addressing. And notice that although the son refuses to go in, the father does go out. He does the exact same thing for the elder son as he did for the younger son. He goes out to meet him, right? We talked about how the father is a father of grace, amazing grace. Here too is grace at work. So here's the elder son who's estranged and doesn't want any part of what's going on in the family, but the father goes out to meet him there. But let's pay attention for a moment. We're talking about the elder son. We'll bring the father into focus in a moment. But look at the elder son again. Look at his speech. It's quite, um, it's quite jarring, actually. He doesn't even address his father. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Now, I have kids, three, uh, two older kids and a younger kid, and I'm, that's not how I hope they'll address me <laughs> one day. Ah, oh, Dad, all these years I've been slaving for you. Really? What kind of relationship do you have with your father, if that's what you're saying? He profoundly misunderstood his relationship with his father in this story. He imagined he could earn it. Somehow if I slave, if I do all the right things, you will be pleased with me. And he goes on in this speech to accuse his younger brother of squandering his father's property. And remember we talked last week, the word property, bios, can be translated life. He's, he's ruined his dad's life. And this uh, elder son just accuses his brother. But it's worse than that, actually. If you look carefully, he doesn't even acknowledge his brother. His brother's a non-entity, right? What he says to his father, but this son of yours... As in, he's got nothing to do with me. That's how little I think of him. This son of yours. Can you hear the scorn? Can you hear the echo of sort of these wimps and losers? Can you hear what the Pharisees are muttering in the corner? This son of yours. Nothing to do with me. I want nothing, nothing to do with him. Well, that's sort of the narrative. Let's hear it, though. Uh, Jason Hildebrand does this play. I, you watched, if you were here, the first part where he's the younger son, the younger brother. Uh, let's hear Jason Hildebrand be the elder brother. Heed me well, know my journey, and never forget, I am the elder son. Proud I am, and most respected among men, I am my father's most devoted hand. Everything that I do is of the utmost excellence and skill. My father owns many fields and vineyards, and I have earned the rightful position of manager. Can you imagine my surprise the other day when I return home from a laborious day of work to find a party going on at my father's house? I am curious. So I draw near. And there, 
my father. The entire household leaping and dancing for joy there. Seated at the place of honor at my father's table is my younger brother, who I assume has returned home from his life of drunkenness, debauchery, and whoring. Party. For this family abandoner, selfish little ingrate, I can't believe he would even return home. Probably ran out of money, and has come crying back to Daddy for some more. Oh, I could have gone with my brother to see the world, seen the sights, lived carefree, and I would have been more successful at it than he was, obviously. But I am much more noble than that. I have a sense of duty. I am required to labor for my father, and so I do so with the utmost excellence and skill. In fact, I believe I am better at running my father's house than he ever was. Oh, sure, I hear the workers talk about his generosity and fairness, but honest hard work comes from fear and discipline. I rule with an iron fist, first there in the morning, last to leave at night. I am the most hardworking of all. So I'm watching this party from a distance when my father spies me. He leaves the party to come and speak with me. Can you believe he has the nerve to invite me to this party? To welcome my brother back into the family. Can you imagine? Never once has he thrown me a party. Never once has he put his most beautiful robe on my shoulders as I see it upon my brother's. He says to me, Son, son, you are with me always. Everything that I have is yours, but we must celebrate for this brother of yours who was lost is now found. This brother of yours who is dead is now alive. I don't understand. I don't understand. I am the one who saw and had to live with my father's brokenness when my brother went off and abused himself. I am the one who sat with him through his hurt, through his pain. I am the one who has toiled away from my father all these many years, and you don't see me complaining. fortune he has me to take care of things now. I know how to run my father's house. In fact, I don't even consult him anymore. His ways are as old as he is. I will not welcome my brother back to my father's table. He's not earned it. Heed me well. Know my journey, and never forget, I am the elder son.
What this parable begins to show us is that both sons are lost. In different ways, to be sure, but they're both lost. They both actually deeply need an encounter with God's grace, the Father's grace. Paul, who reflects on this, um, so Jesus here in story form, Paul in, uh, I'll call theological form, just hear these words, familiar words from Ephesians, where he's writing to a church. And he says this, For um, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Does that not sound like the younger son? Right? All of us lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of our thoughts. Like the rest, they were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, here, keep going. But, that little word there is such good news. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved or rescued or welcomed home. And God raises up with Christ... Uh, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms... In Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right? God's grace. Keep reading. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It's a gift, not by works. Doesn't that sound like the older brother who thought he could earn it? It's not by works, and none of you can boast, including him, including me. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The younger brother, the elder brother, but in the very middle of the story is grace. Grace. It's God's grace that takes the initiative both in coming, uh, in helping the younger brother uh, come to his senses and return home, and then the father runs to meet him, and with the elder brother, the father goes out to beg with him, come join, what's going on? God's grace takes the initiative. Let's bring the father quickly back into view here, uh, who I think is the central character of this story, not the two sons. The two sons are obviously important parts of the story, but the father is at the center. And as you remember, the, young, or the elder son, when he addressed his dad, says, look, and just starts complaining, doesn't even address his father as father, which, by the way, the younger son did do, for all his many faults, <laughs> still addressed him as father. But listen to what the father says. First word in, out of his mouth to the elder son. First word. My son. And he's reminding, simply in those words, he's reminding the elder brother what has always been true. You didn't have to earn this relationship. You've always been my son. You've just missed it. You've misunderstood the relationship. Right? Grace is primary here. 
Now, both the elder and the younger brother needed to respond to God's grace. The younger brother came to his senses, needed to return home. There's a repentance there. The elder brother, as we'll see in a moment, also needs to repent. Right? There is a response to God's grace, but God's grace is primary. My son. Right? You're always with me. Everything that is mine is yours. And then in verse 32, last verse of the parable, um, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, now listen, this brother of yours. Remember the son when he talks? Right? This son of yours. And the father just gently reminds him of the relationship. This brother of yours. So if repentance for the younger son meant coming back home and learning to say father, repentance for the older son, the older brother, is learning to say brother again. Right? To fix that relationship, which is the very relationship that these muttering Pharisees on the edge of the room have got all wrong. They don't see the people seated around the table as brothers and sisters. And that's the repentance they're called to. In the context of the parable, one cannot be a son without being a brother. Just cannot be. And so a right relationship and entering into relationship with the father means being in relationship with the brother. Jesus in another place will highlight this when asked what the greatest commandments are. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor like yourself. Right? Your relationship with God has to translate to your relationship with your brothers and sisters. Now, as I said about the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and now these lost brothers, the emphasis of this story also lands with the celebration. And the need to celebrate. And really this is an echo of these profound words in Zephaniah. Um, They'll be up on the screen. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is a picture of God who delights on his children, the younger and the older, who wants to delight over them as they come back and receive his grace. He just wants to sing over them, his gladness, his deep gladness. This is profoundly good news, this grace that is available and waiting. So wherever you find yourself in the story, you might not be a recovering Pharisee like me, You might far more identify with the younger son. But wherever you find yourself in the story, whether you're seated at the table with Jesus and the tax collectors or whether you're on the the outer edges with the complainers, those passing judgment, the good news is the center of the story is God's grace. It is primary. It is in Jesus, and he extends it out to each one of us and longs to meet us in wherever we are and welcome us home. And the story leaves us there. 
Does the older brother join the celebration? We don't know. It's left sort of hanging because the question is left hanging for you and I. Do we join in? Will we join in? Will we stay in that far distant country and not come back? Or will we stand off on the edges and just look down on people with judgment? Or will we join in? Let me give the last word here to um, N.T. Wright, who's a kind of a stodgy British guy. But he actually writes about celebration. (laughs) Who knew the British could celebrate? Um, But here it is. This is what he says. This is beautiful. I've read it a lot of times. Maybe it'll make more sense if you read it three or four times. But let me try it once. So, says Jesus, it's time to celebrate. It's happening. Not perhaps in the way you thought it would. Not yet on a national scale, but it's happening all right. How glad they will be in heaven over one sinner who repents. Hey, your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. Resurrection, the ultimate hope of new life, is happening under your noses. And you can't see it. But for those of you who can, well, we're having a party. And the same, it's the same party the angels are having in heaven, and you are not going to stop us. This, it seems, is part, at least, of what it means that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. The heavenly celebrations are signs of renewal, first flickers of dawn that will soon flood the whole sky. And they're to be matched by this motley mob of people around Jesus here and there in Matthew's house, in Zacchaeus's house, in the local pub with Mary Magdalene. This is what it looks like when God's in charge. So friends, I invite you to the celebration. Let me pray. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to sing a song. Um, Just allow you to hear the song or just listen to the song, but sit with these words, sit with this invitation to join what God is doing, the celebration. Be a full participant. Come home. God, I thank you that your grace is far, far bigger and far more amazing than I ever dared imagine. And not only do you welcome home people whose lives are broken and who have squandered your gifts, God, you are waiting to welcome them home when they return. You're just waiting to embrace them. But this morning, I'm struck that your grace is big enough to even include Pharisees like me that have written younger brothers off left, right, and center. God, forgive me for my judgmentalism, my arrogance, my pride. Maybe there's others like that. But your grace is big enough to invite us to the party as well. This is what you're doing. 